So if you think about the songs that, that Jim selected, you know, I, I keep, I, I see themes, right? I see this exalted Lord that we so desperately need, right? I see our desperation, our sin, I see our weakness. And we need reminding of that because as much as we say, all I have is Christ, do we live that way every single day? Or do we get busy with all the things of life? Do we get uh, enchanted by people who uh, to praise us and encourage us? And we begin to think it's about us and not about Him. And it's all about Him. And sometimes we need these times where we kind of step back and, and look and reevaluate. We each have lives that kind of go like this. That's one reason why the Psalms... It's one of my favorite books because my life is like this. Sometimes my worship, I just am enraptured by him. And then other times I'm just cold and indifferent, busy doing my own thing. And so as uh, when the pastor asked me to do this, I started thinking, okay, end of the year, what do we talk about? And this was not what I planned to talk about, but this is what sort of came out in the last couple of days. And I appreciate, I appreciate you being willing to sing this song about unfaithful, because we, we typically sing, oh, come all ye faithful. But oftentimes we look at ourselves honestly and say, I'm not so faithful. You know, that's really calling people sort of on the other side, but we need reminding about who we are. You know, and the funny thing about it was we picked that, Pastor and I picked that song for Karis to sing at the beginning of December on the 6th because it was also Lord's Supper Sunday. And it's a perfect song to talk about Christ coming as a lamb. It's also a perfect song to remind us of who we are. And as I told him, I sat during the Lord's Supper, and I was just amazed watching people come. And as she was singing, come, all ye unfaithful, and I saw us standing up and coming to the supper, it was just a great um, remembrance of what, one day we will see, really in reality, this is, this is a symbol, but one day we look forward to that supper, which sort of led from one thing to another. Also then, as I was looking at the song, then I was thinking about how, you know, it says that Christ is given, slain for our pardon as the lamb. And in Revelation, we see him as the lamb. He presents himself as the lamb. We see bitterness and brokenness and instability and all those things within that song. But sometimes the way that we live, we try to show everybody that we're very stable. I'm not bitter. I'm not weak. I'm strong. I got it all together. And particularly as visitors come to our church, people that are like unchurched, they may look at us and think, oh, well, these are all the people who have their act together. They make sure they're all dressed right. They're sitting right. They understand all of the church terminologies that we use, right? You know, but that's not deep down in some ways who we are, and we need to realize that. So I appreciate that song. So we're going to look in Revelation 19. As Jim said, you know, this is not what we normally do, right? Um, but that was a, those songs were marvelous in looking at Revelation. I was also thinking as he was reading in, Revelation 5, about no one was found worthy to open the book. It says that John wept 
uncontrollably. He sobbed loudly because he realized what that meant. He realized what that meant, and, and, and so he, he, he cried out. I don't know that we really understand what all of that truly means, but this idea of um, on the scroll in those seven seals, typically what would happen is you would write within the scroll and you would bind it up and seal it, and that'd be it. But then on a title deed, they would write on the outside the requirements of the person that, to open it, right? And we saw that in uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by God to sell a field, even though he knew Jerusalem was being conquered and was going to be destroyed. But there was a promise that that his his offspring, his family, would eventually come back. And so we we see that sort of seal, and we see that on the outside it said plainly who was who was able to do that. And it was it must be one who was perfect, one who was without sin, one who's God made man. And so there was one, there was the lamb who was able to step forward and begin to open seal after seal after seal. And we see what happens with all that as we go through Revelation. Um, as Jim also said, Revelation is interesting because it starts very church-oriented. The first three chapters start very church-oriented, looking at the churches. And I highly recommend people studying that and looking at the churches and what Christ is saying to those. But But then it becomes very apocalyptic and very Jewish in lots of ways. And so if you're in our daily Bible reading program, you know that every time we get to Revelation, I say, here's the final exam again. The final exam meaning you have read through the entire Bible up to Revelation. What did you get out of it? Can can you see the illusions? As you read the Revelation, can you go, oh, that was back there. And then, really, it starts again when you start in Genesis and you start to read through again. Can you remember what you saw in Revelation and go, oh, that makes more sense to me. And then the more we read it, the more it becomes a friend to us and, and that sort of thing. So um, it's, a, it's an interesting book. It's a great challenge to us because it, it isn't how we think and we don't understand all the illusions. So in Revelation, just quick background, there's 404 verses. 278 of them refer to the Old Testament. But not only the 278 uh, verses refer to the Old Testament, there's 500 allusions back to the Old Testament. So that means that those verses have multiple allusions back to the Old Testament. And so you have to keep stopping going, what does this really mean? And so as Jim read about the, about the 24 elders and about the, the, the living creature, you know, those are things that we don't, Always really, we don't really understand everything, and it's hard to even get a visual, right? We tend to be very visual people, and we want to sort of set this up, but it doesn't make sense. I mean, in in heaven, and I trust throughout eternity, we're not limited to the three and a half or so uh, dimensions that we have here. And so trying to write it down, and for us to understand it, sometimes a little bit confusing, but I think it's always worthwhile. I also send, I try to send an email every time we're about to go into Revelation just to tell the church family, do you want to read the Revelation with us? Because Revelation is the one book that says you will be blessed. You'll be blessed for reading this and following this, and so it's important. It's also important in a different kind of way because it exposes controversies within the body of Christ. Right, so uh, big readers of Revelation, you know, some some people is their favorite book, right? Um, 
as we go through Revelation, it, it causes, it brings out differences of opinion. And so what I'm going to try to do today is avoid those minefields. Now, if I fall on a minefield, it's only by your grace that the mine doesn't explode. So just throw a lot of grace over and it won't explode and I'll get up and I'll keep going. But I'll, I'll try to avoid those kinds of things. Uh, by the way, uh, as is my, my practice, if you want to start up our Bible reading program, um, January 1, if you'd see me or see Terry, really Terry, Terry does all the work. Um, so he'll be happy to put you in the email group. But it's a closed email group, so you can't, you can't email from outside the group, you know, and that sort of thing. So there are some limitations. So we want to, to make you a part of it, and we don't want to presume that everybody wants to be part of it because there are a lot of other kinds of Bible reading programs that people are doing, I realize. So we don't send it to everybody. We just send it to the people who request to be in that group, okay? But then you can email within the group, and you can have a discussion. If you have a question about a verse, you know, you can get people responding to it. So we, we always have these, these cool ideas. So the, in our daily Bible reading, and oftentimes we call it like the Bible tour, um, it's interesting how, as Jim said, as you go through the Bible, there, there are certain structures that you see. And one of the things that uh, we often see in there and may comment about is that there are oftentimes in these stories, these experiences in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, there are two distinct people. Amazing how frequently this happens. There's a person who believes. There's a person who's faithful. There's a person who's righteous, who puts everything on the promises that God has made for him. And then there are other people who are not. People who bank on themselves, believe that salvation is theirs. They can fix everything on their own. They're going to fight against God. We see this. We see the wheat and the tares and the redeemed and the lost and the obedient servants and the disobedient servants. We see the living and the dead. We see that over and over again. And interestingly, in chapter 19, we see the same thing. We see two views within this same period of time and we see it from two different perspectives. We see it from the perspective of the redeemed. And what we see is the redeemed, just like with Jim's reading, are frequently standing up in praise to God. But we also see the final destruction of the enemies of God. And what do we hear from them? Nothing. They have nothing to say. They have lived their life as enemies of God. And Christ has come to conquer and so we see that in, uh, in 19, and I think that's instructive. We need to realize that we have this opportunity now to turn to Christ, to place everything upon him, to realize our inability, our weakness, and to turn to him. But there will be one day when he will no longer ask us. He will no longer call us. We'll have nothing to say. Our voices will not be heard. And so this is something I think instructive and Helpful about Revelation 19. Revelation 19 also is interesting because of the, the combination of, of sort of proceedings that are going on almost within this real one event. We see the final destruction of Babylon, this world system that uh, is fighting against God. But at the same time, we see an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Very juxtaposed sort of... Uh, events or proceedings. We see that Christ finally destroys his enemies. We see, um, we see the, the, the beast 
um, and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. But we see all this praise, and that runs a little bit counter to our world, right? Whenever we get into particularly Psalms um, in Sunday school classes, we uh, get, I oftentimes get this question. It's like, there's a lot of, you know, asking God to destroy my enemies, but aren't I supposed to be merciful? Well, I am to, I am to be merciful and gracious. It's God who's going to come one day in his justice, and he is going to destroy his enemies. So, um, yes, there's two, two sides of this, right? And so in our case, we see that finally um, the end slash beginning has come, and God is going to bring about what his will is, and we want his will. And part of that is the destruction of his enemies, right? So if you look at Revelation 19, one of the things you're going to see you're going to see sort of John's commentary, as you, if you want to say it that way, and then you're going to see quotations. And then this is what's said by the multitude in heaven, right? So what I'd like to do is read through 19 verses 1 through 9, and I'll read the commentary, and then will you read with me what's in the quotations? Does that make sense? That kind of complicated? Okay. So Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our... I, I don't hear crying out. Did you, did you hear what I said? I said crying out. So here we go. Verse 2. Here we go. Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. You're getting there. A little, little more crying out. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne, that's good. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Blessed are they who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, pretty good. Uh, we're going to work on that. Hallelujah. I don't know if you notice that you're busy trying to, to cry out. It takes a little bit of effort, right? We're not accustomed to that. We're not crying out people. I've gone to some churches, and there's a lot of crying out, right? I go to some churches, and it's hard to identify whether it's the flesh or whether it's the spirit. And I think in our case, we probably overdue trying to squelch the flesh and sometimes squelch the spirit 
But sometimes you just want to say, Alleluia, right? And so, you know, what we see is, this is what's happening. So if we're going to be up there doing this, go ahead and practice. You can be ready, right? You know, um, you, you can have it down. So I don't know if you noticed this, but we said Alleluia four times. Four times, right? Now, what's curious about this is, if you, you use your nice little Bible software and you do a search, there are only four times in the New Testament that the word Alleluia is used, which I have to say surprised me. I mean, you know, you read through this and you don't oftentimes think to take all these kind of words that we know. Alleluia is sort of a common word. We understand that. But to look back and go, what's wrong? Wouldn't you think? I mean, I would think that, that John would have been using Alleluia in his epistle, right? He used it here, but he didn't use it there, which I found sort of interesting. So Alleluia, as a Greek word, is just a transliteration from Hebrew word, which really is Hallel, Yah. And we even have a hymn, which always throws people off, hymn number 200, because it actually says Hallelujah, space, yeah, and everybody thinks it's a, it's a typo, but it's actually praise, Hallel, Jehovah, Yahweh, Yah, right? So their, their desire to have it so correct, it sort of throws people off. So, so hallelujah, meaning praise Yahweh, praise Jehovah, or in our case, because there was historically such a concern about using God's name, they used Adonai, and so now we say praise the Lord. It's all the same, but the, the, the key really being is when we say Alleluia, when I say Alleluia, I haven't really understood what it really, really meant, right? So Hallel, we know is praise. We know that there are Hallel Psalms, right? Pastors has mentioned that. So in 113 through 118 and 146 through 150, we have these praise Psalms, right? And so, so, you know, you always have to look it up, right? It's amazing. So Hallel, praise, really means to shine, to make clear, to boast, to rave, to celebrate to the point of looking foolish. Now, how often when we praise the Lord have we gotten to the point of looking foolish because we were so overwhelmed by His goodness? It's hard for most of us, right? We don't want to look foolish to other people. And I realize, so I think what, you know, in my case, I want to be more like that, at least privately in my worship. You know, there's no reason to be buttoned up. You know, it's God. You know, you can be honest with him. You may worry about somebody else. You may be afraid to raise your hands. I have actually had several people come up to me and say, I really wanted to raise my hand on that, but I was afraid that other people might look and say, okay, there's something going on over here. So it's, it's okay, brother, right? We can raise our hands. We can raise our hands and say, glory, hallelujah, amen. You know, so here we go. So we have these four hallelujahs. And what I'd like to do is discuss each one of them fairly briefly. I should... To say that, I shouldn't do that. Uh, so one of them is, the very first one is Alleluia for his justice. Then Alleluia for his victory. Alleluia for his sovereignty. And Alleluia for the salvation 
of Christ's bride. So it's funny about justice. You know, we, as I said, we're a little concerned about, you know, calling down hellfire on people, right? But, you know, we applaud like that, you know, quietly when we see that happen. But we see in Revelation 6. So in Revelation 6.10 is an interesting uh, pair of verses. Um, these are martyrs. The martyrs are crying out. They cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they sometimes had been. When I was younger, you know, I'd hear people say, you don't know when the the world is going to end. You don't know when Jesus is going to come back. But one thing that I, I told people, you can always know when the number of martyrs is complete. That didn't make anybody happy. You know, there's always a fear that I'm going to be a martyr, Right? But is it wrong for the martyrs to cry out, to say, avenge our blood? Do your will. Be just and righteous. No. It's just something that in our lives we find a little bit difficult on this earth. Because one to one, we are called to be gracious and merciful and forgiving to each other. Because we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, right? But God, perfect, holy, and just, he has a right. And we'll talk about that. Um, it's interesting, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10, Paul talked about this. He said, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you, you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who are afflicted and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you uh, has been believed. So... As Paul is saying, you're suffering. I'm not calling for you to rain down fire upon these people. I'm saying that God one day will bring out his justice and he will conquer. And we will see that. But as a believer in this world, we have to know we're going to suffer. We're going uh, to suffer injustice. We know that as much as we want, to, uh, we want the godly to prosper... Typically, we find the ungodly prosper. Typically, we find the ungodly are taking our taxes and giving it to foreign governments and doing all kinds of foolish things to destroy the environment that they say they want to protect, but actually everything that they do is really destroying the environment because they lack discernment. That's something that we have to understand when we look at unbelievers. If they don't have Jesus Christ, they lack discernment. They will typically do the opposite of what they should do because they don't understand what's going on. And that's why we uh, value our life in Jesus Christ because it's the only hope for us to understand reality. The reality is all through Jesus Christ because he created everything that we have. So all reality is through him. And if we don't know him, we don't know reality. 
The thing about justice, though, is that we don't tend to talk much about it. I think, from my perspective, it's because, man, I know my, I, I know my sin, you know, and as much as he has come to take away that shame in this world, I still, still feel the shame of my sin. And so it's hard to say, you know, God is going to bring judgment on those people because, you know, as we say, if I'm pointing, you know, I've got all these fingers pointing back at me. And then oftentimes in church, we don't want to talk about it because we don't want to offend people maybe who are new here to say, you know, God is a just God and you're going to get, you know, what you deserve. But at the same time, realizing that if God is not just, then God is not loving or righteous or holy. If God is not just, then when we, when we come and we lay everything down on Christ and say, it's all yours, everything that I have is yours, it's not me, I'm trusting in you, then you can't trust in him. You can't trust in a God who's not just because Jesus has already come and paid for my sins, so you can't come back on me. But an unjust God can. We rely more on his justice than I think we probably realize. We just don't talk a lot about his justice. So we see the justice as he comes in, in, the, in verse 2. We see the hallelujah, salvation, and glory, and power as he comes and destroys the great prostitute Babylon, the, the wicked um, political empire. So we see the righteous, divine justice of God deserves a hallelujah, right? And so what do we say? Alleluia, right? Because we need to look at that. We need to see that and say, that's my God. And I can live through this world. I can suffer as I suffer. Now, I realize that, you know, if you knew my life, you'd say Paul didn't really suffer. Oftentimes, the suffering in life is internal, isn't it? It's continually telling myself, it's not me. I don't get what I want. I live for a Savior. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, right? That's suffering. It's saying that I don't come here to fulfill my desires. I come here to fulfill His desires. So even those of us who seem to have a pretty easy life, there's that daily taking up the cross, and following him. And one day, all of that, even though I see, so we see Psalm 73 and Psalm 37 uh, as examples, we see how it appears that the wicked prosper. We know that one day things will be different. We know that our Savior will return. Victory. So, Alleluia. Next one. Alleluia for his victory in 19.3. Once more they cried out, Alleluia. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's another thing that's hard for us to say. Yes, they suffered. They suffered because of their sin. They suffered because they were raging against God. Hallelujah that he did this. That he is a just and righteous God, but that he is victorious. We look at Psalm 2 a lot where we see the Trinity speaking to each other about um, these nations that are raging against them and how foolish it is. And the first couple of verses say, why do the nations rage and the people 
people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. How foolish we say. Why fight against God? Because in this world, you may prosper for a little bit, and that's okay, right? Maybe God doesn't really exist. Maybe I can get by with this. Maybe I can live the life that I want to live. If God doesn't exist, if Christ didn't die for our sins, we are the most foolish people imaginable, dying to ourselves and living for him. But we know, we know who he is. We know that he reigns. Isaiah 34 gives us other pictures about the judgment of these nations, but for time we won't look at those. So we see in this life oftentimes what we don't think is victorious life, right? We see... We see nations. We see all this big C stuff. It's funny how big C was cancer. Now it's like they should have used a different letter. You know, now the big C is COVID, and everybody's like worried about all these things. And I understand, but at the same time, we need to look. We need to look to our victorious God. You know, and as I was praying about this, I, I was I, I began thinking. I guess the Spirit started started telling me about victories. You know, it is amazing the victories that we have, even with this small body. We have people who have been very ill, who have just been miraculously healed, and are doing very well, and give him the glory. We have people who lose jobs, and invariably, so far, everybody that I know here that has lost a job and uh, is looking for another one has found a better job. And they look back and go, oh, this was a great deal. You know, I should, have, I should have lost my job sooner because God takes care of us, doesn't he? He provides for our needs. When we have relationship issues between spouses, when we turn to Christ and say, it's all about Christ, it's not about me, we see victory. And so in this life, these are the kinds of victories I think oftentimes we have to look for because we don't see victories in the world. Why would we see Christ victories in this world, in Satan's world, right? We see victories because of the cross, because of what he does for us, because we bow the knee to him and he then brings us together. When we see struggles, it's because iron is sharpening iron and we're struggling because he's trying to get rid of a little bit more of our flesh and then we see a beautiful victory. I tell people this is a great thing about relatively small churches. I don't want to go to church that has more than about 150, 160 people because I can't keep track. I have a hard enough time trying to keep track of people. But it's amazing when you hear people's testimonies, when you hear people that come up to join the church and they, they talk to you about what their life was like. To think somebody who had been, you know, a, an atheist for 30 some odd years and Christ came in and touched him and saved him, transformed his life. That is victorious. And we need to Praise the Lord about those victories. And how do we say that? Alleluia for his victories. We praise him for the victories because we see how it's working within our lives. You know, and that's the thing also is sometimes, you know, I, I find myself just saying, I just want to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what? You know, you need to have a characteristic, uh, you know, you have to have an event, uh, a gift, Something that he's given you. So we praise him for those victories. You can praise him for who he is, but it's nice to list out. And that's what we see here. We consistently see things that are listed out. 
So then in 194, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God and all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. You know, as uh, Jim read, you know, we see these uh, four and 24, these 24 elders, and we see these living creatures, you know, and uh, we're not going to get into a lot of this, but it is amazing how when you look in Revelation at the 24 elders, there's 12 verses about the 24 elders. I always look at the numbers because the numbers tell me something, right? Just like the seven churches, there was at least 100 churches at that time, but there were seven churches, I should do this correctly, right? Seven churches, um, which meant complete. It was, there was a completion there, um, so that each one of those had a representation among all the rest of the body of churches. And so it's fascinating to look at these numbers. Um, the other thing about, um, the elders is that they're kings and priests. And so we see them on thrones. We see them bowing down and worshiping God. Casting their thrones before their crowns before him, the four living the four living creatures are interesting because we hadn't seen them in our Bible reading plan. We hadn't seen them since Ezekiel, and they're in Ezekiel twice. Ezekiel makes note of them, really referring to the presence and the throne of God in seeing these four living creatures. And one of the things over the years, as we've been looking at this, trying to figure it out, we started talking about how these four living creatures. Um, then relate to the uh, the camp of Israel. They also relate then to the four Gospels. And so it's fascinating as you begin to look at it because there's so much intertwining of the Word of God. There's so many allusions. The more and more you read it, the more you go, oh, I see how this all ties together. and just becomes bigger, bigger and better. So for His sovereignty, we, we praise Him and we worship Him because who he is. He is a sovereign Lord. If he wasn't sovereign, we wouldn't have to worship him. It's him. It's all about him. It's all for him. In 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16, Paul said to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called about and about which you had made the a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign King of Kings, Lord of Lords, hallelujah, who alone, it doesn't say there, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul wouldn't call Timothy to do these things, to set aside all these things, to purify his life, to live for Jesus Christ if he wasn't sovereign. But because he is sovereign, we lay all these other things down and we live for him. And he lives through us, through his Holy Spirit. And therefore, he is sovereign and he is deserving of Alleluia. He is deserving of all our praise because he is a sovereign God. He is our sovereign Lord. And then the most exciting part, I think, is when we get to 19.6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude 
like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. It's interesting. So, you know, being, being Greek ignorant, I end up having to go back to my interlinear Bible a lot. It's interesting that when we see this, what the Greek seems to say most exactly is, and I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and, so Kai, Kai is and, and there's a comma here, which sometimes when there's a comma, you don't know exactly what the comma is there for, right? Um, and, like the sound of many waters, and, I love this, nice list, like the sound of thunders mighty. So in my ignorance, I read this and I say, okay, I'm thinking that there is a voice of multitude that's great, and number two, there's a sound of many waters. And number three, there's a sound of thunders mighty, which tells me, one, that I got this triunity, which, you know, numerology, there's three. That's really pretty good, right? It's amazing the number of times there's, we see threes in the Bible. But it's interesting because when you go back just in Revelation, the sound of many waters was ascribed to Christ Jesus' voice. That when Christ spoke, it was like the sound of many waters. It's also interesting when it talks about previously in Revelation 4, 5, it talks about the sound of thunders mighty. That's what it uses to describe the voice coming from the throne of God. So my, my ignorant proposal is everybody is in on this act. So when everybody says, Alleluia, for the Lord our God reigns, the Almighty reigns, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So my proposal is, because this is not like just the multitude. Multitude is pretty good, right? But this is multitude. This is many waters. This is peals of thunder. This is like everybody. Everybody's getting in the act. Why? What are we all hoping for? I mean, you know, I don't want to just get to heaven and go, what I have, you know, facetiously called fire insurance. You know, once you're there, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm safe. That's good. But what as believers we should really want is we want, we want the son. We want our redeemer. We want our savior. We want to be his bride. We want to be married to him forever and ever. We want to live and reign with our Savior, our Redeemer. Otherwise, what is all of this worth? You know, all the suffering, all the giving up of myself, because I want Him, and I want to live for Him. I want Him to be honored, whether it's in my life here or honored there. And so, can you imagine? I mean, this is it. To me, this is the pinnacle. This is what I want. You know, now we get to see new Jerusalem and all, and new heaven and new earth, and all that is like great, I don't really understand all that. Once again, I think it's a dimensionality problem. I don't, you know, it's hard to sort of figure out with the limited mind I have all this stuff that's going on and how, and how he creates it. But, but still, this is what we're looking toward. And so everybody comes together to, to, to praise him. It's interesting also that in Revelation 9, um, yeah, Revelation 19, 9, uh, the angel said to me, to John, Write this, quote, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Now, honestly, this message started talking, uh, was really going to be about marriage supper of the Lamb. Why does Jesus present himself as the Lamb? Just think of all the things he could present himself as. You know, and most grooms, you know, particularly, well, some, some, some grooms come in very beautiful and radiant and handsome and stuff, right? Some of us, not so much. But we try to do the very best we can. You know, we try to get ourselves as dolled up as possible because that bride is going to look absolutely amazing. But Christ doesn't come as the re- our Redeemer. He doesn't come as our Savior. He doesn't come as God. He doesn't come as Alpha and Omega. He comes as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. It is Him, His presentation to us as the Lamb is what we need. It's everything that we need. We needed Him to be the Lamb. He, so He presents Himself as this Lamb, which I find is absolutely stunning. It's also interesting to look at this and to realize that when he, when the angel says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that there are seven, what we call beatitudes in Revelation. Seven. See, that's, a, that's one of those key numbers, right? Completion. You know, it's interesting because in the seven of them, if you, if you, you know, if you go through the, the book and you, and you put them in the order that they are in the book, this one is number four which means there's three before and there's three after, which puts it in the middle, right? And middle is sort of important. But then if you look at them, chronologically appears this one is last, and that's very important because this is the culmination of our life. This is the culmination of our creation, right? To bring him glory, to make a people for for himself, a people who was not a people, a people who doesn't deserve him, a people who was dead in trespasses and sins, that he was going to die, that he was going to be raised the third day, that he was going to then, through his Holy Spirit, come and work in us and give us a heart for him. To set all this other stuff aside and to live for him and to praise him on this earth, but also then spend all of eternity praising and worshiping him. This is why it was all created. So this is just my proposal. This is the culmination. So as I started looking at this, you might want to turn to here. I, I, I turned to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 1.10, it's funny, you know, sometimes the Spirit takes you on little uh, jogs. You know, and the jogs are usually the, the best part, right? So 2 Corinthians 1.10 says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us. And we see the culmination of this in Revelation 19, right? We see that He will deliver us. He has delivered us at that point. We are at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All this has culminated and being able to marry our Redeemer, our Savior, our King. But then for some reason, I started looking at this and thinking about, of course, there's an order. Three times deliverance. You know, that says something, right? That's important. I say that sometimes sometimes jokingly, but then when I actually study, I find out there's really a reason why there's there's always three there, right? But the the cool thing came when I started looking at what he means when he says he delivered us. What does the Greek word mean for deliver? You know, and we, we think about, okay, snatch somebody out, right? You know, go and get somebody, deliver them out of a burning house or whatever the case may be. 
But the Greek word has more meaning. It means to rescue by drawing out to oneself. It's not that he's saying that Christ is going to just deliver us. Christ is going to deliver us to him. But then that's not even as good as it gets. Christ is going to deliver us to him for him. It's all about him. He's not just going to pick us up and just set us on a safety, a safe spot. He's actually going to snatch us out, as it were, from the lake of fire, snatch us out to him and hold us to him because we are his. Which is an amazing idea to think about. He delivered us from a deadly peril. He didn't just take away the deadly peril. He actually brought us to him and holds us tightly. Which maybe then think about the model prayer. So when the model prayer says deliver us from evil, what it really means is save us from the evil one to you and to yourself. So it's so much more than just deliverance and leave me on the, the side of the street. No, once he delivers us, he will deliver us. He will continue to deliver us. He will send his Holy Spirit within us. He will draw us to him. We will be his and he will eternally provide for us. So there's just... There's so much there. And so we see that back in Revelation 19 when it says, when it says that, uh, and the bride has made herself ready, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Well, come on. Your own deeds. How righteous are your personal deeds? Are, are those going to make you righteous? No. It's the righteous deeds of the saints done through the Spirit, right? So it's really Christ's righteous deeds done through us that allow us to be clothed in fine white linen. So once again, he delivers us to himself so he can live through us so that we can get the benefit that he has. So we get treated like him. We get to inherit all that he inherits, Everything becomes ours and his together. We are his bride. It's all together as one. So we're united, finally. We're not just eternally safe, but we are wed to God. So doesn't God's salvation of his son's bride deserve a alleluia? Doesn't it? So when we come and we praise the Lord, think about these kinds of things. You know, as I was reading through it, I realized my worship is like oftentimes very dull, right? I can do my Bible reading, check it off. I can send a little emails, you see this, did you see that? But then at the end, think, I'm just like coasting, right? We don't want to coast through our life with Christ. We want to live We want him to shine. We want him to reign. So then the question became to me, and it is to me, but I'll share it with you. As I read through this, then my question was, how's my worship? Is my worship, alleluia, worthy? Because if alleluia means I am supposed to shine a light, if it means that I am supposed to boast, if I'm supposed to celebrate to almost state of foolishness, because he's worthy of it all. And in that process, I somehow humble myself in my foolishness to exalt him who is worthy of all. 
That's what my, wor- my worship should be, right? Now, we may not do that here. You know, um, put a couple of waving hands in the front yard so everybody can see as they drive by and know that, that we're one of those churches. We don't tend to be one of those churches. Reformed people don't tend to be one of those people, right? But at the same time, I think the key becomes in our personal life, in our personal worship, how we live our life before other people. Do I boast of Jesus Christ? I'm supposed to boast in the cross. Do I talk to people about it? Do I share with them? Do I, do I make that sort of a center of my life? That became sort of the question. Because then as I started looking at my worship and I said, okay, so Lord, why do I go through this up and down? Part of the answer is because you're in your flesh, right? You, you live here on this earth. You, you know, it keeps impacting you. And you have to keep turning around. And we know, we know believers say that. I have to keep repenting, re-looking to him. But also, I guess I was impressed to realize that sometimes my worship fails because I've lost sight of the depth of my sin. You know, just living my life. But when I see the depth of my sin, and I then secondarily see the greatness, the goodness of God, and the fact that he would even consider me, much less give himself for me, to pull me to himself to deliver me, then that's when worship breaks out. Worship breaks out when we are amazed at who he is and what he has done for us and the fact that he can live through us. The other thing that that I found is that the more I do it, the more he gives me. So the more I live for him, the more he gives me a desire and ability to live for him. The more I read the word, the more I love the word. You know, the more I talk to people about him and what he's done for me, the more I enjoy talking to people. It's a funny thing. I, I know that as believers, you know, we, we talk about rewards and blessings and stuff like that. And if we're not careful because we live in this world, we start to think about, well, you know, my house could be a little bit better and I could use a new car and, you know, could you easily shed 30 pounds off my body and things like that. But I think that his real rewards are himself. That as we turn to him, as we live a alleluia worthy life, as we worship and we praise him, he gives us more of him. He removes the veil just a little bit more to shine more light on us. And he gives us that ability to live more for him and to desire the things of this world less. So it's not necessarily from his blessing that he's going to give us more stuff Personally, I got too much. The stuff has become a curse. I got too much stuff. Got to do something with that stuff. So seek diligently. I, this is my prayer, that we would seek diligently to have our mindset right, that we would speak right things to us, that we would focus on who he is, that we would see who we are, that we would live a life of praise, of alleluia, for his justice, for the victory that we see in our lives even now, but also praise him, hallelujah, for what we know is going to be because it's right here. This is faithful and true. His son is faithful and true. We know he is a faithful witness and what he says will happen, will happen. We can hallelujah praise him for his sovereignty, which means getting rid of a lot of me. 
right? It means continually shaving off more of me so that there's more of him and I see him in better light. And then, you know, hallelujah, that he would save us. Salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to him and him alone. So we must live our lives that way, just in rapture about what he is. You know, we, yeah, I was reading, I was reading a pastor recently. He said, you know, this is what I don't get. And we've all heard this before is, you know, he says, I like to go to sports games and people are like yelling. And every time, you know, say a football game, there's a touchdown, you know, they go through their chants and stuff. He said, I don't hear any of that in church. He said, we're on Bill Stade. But then we go to the game, and we're really excited, right? He said, I want to be more excited about Jesus Christ than I am about some game. Because the game's fleeting. Jesus Christ is eternal. I had to pay to go to the game. Jesus had to pay to deliver me to himself. So why not praise him and glorify him and live a life of hallelujah, praise to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Oh, how I do pray you would help us, weak as we are. Father, we are weak and unstable. We're weary. Many of us, Father, have been bitter at times. We're tired of praying. We're tired of suffering. Father, that we would just come to you, be enraptured by who you are, what you've done for us, that hallelujah would be lived out through our life as we praise you, our Lord, as we desire to sh- the light would be shined upon you, as we want to boast and celebrate and exult in who you are and not in who we are. Father, we confess that we, living in these bodies with these physical eyes, are so oftentimes drawn away. We become cold. Father, we get so involved in the things of this world, so many problems. You know, I said, one new house because I got problems with the current one. I want a new car because I got problems with the current car. I got problems with my children. Hope I don't want new children. But Father, that we would be able to stop all that tendency within the flesh that you might help us to look to you, to see your son, the lamb that will one day be our husband. Father, that we would live victorious lives in a way that's pleasing to you, that even while we suffer, we see the victories you give us. We look for those opportunities to praise you, to speak of who you are, to boast in you, to celebrate you not to look at our problems. The problems are all fleeting. And all that you have in store for us, may we give you praise, honor, and glory as you alone are due. I pray these things in Jesus' name.